I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. And to start things off, you know, Happy New Year to everyone. We, uh, we made it through 2022. Uh, how are you guys feeling about uh, 2023? Terrible. <laughs> well, I can I can tell you from where I sit, it's already 2023, and it's it's not as bad as 2022 was. So things are looking up from this direction. It's all good. Yeah, no. Hopefully, it'll be it'll be a good year. Well, you know, we do do our uh, occasional discussion about how we've contributed, you know, to helping fight climate change. Maybe we need to talk about goals for 2023. I'm putting you on the spot here. I expect I, eloquent, well thought out answers. I still need to uh, do more to, I think, improve my my diet, and I think that would be a, a good one. I need to be more of a flexitarian, you know, or definitely cut out beef as much as possible, I think, would be a good goal for me. That's solid. So eat a, eat a few more impossible and beyond meat burgers. Yeah, and, I, and I've been doing that, but I need to just monitor it more. And I need to venture out of my, my area and find some more more biodiesel if I'm going to be driving my car more than, than I have been in the past. Well, listeners should know, though, that you also do have an electric, right? It's just your... I do. Your, just my other car. Right. Your backup. Yeah. What about you, Thomas? Any uh, climate aspirations for 2023? Well, I, I finally got uh, one of these DC fast chargers installed what, two, two or three weeks ago. I've got two more to do at the start of this year, and it'd be great to get those wrapped up because they were supposed to be in last year. But yeah, I guess uh, at a personal level, I think I've got to make sure that when I go and plant trees, they survive. Um, <laughs> I've planted a lot of trees in the last few years, but it's remembering to go and water them because it's that first like three or four years that you've got to get them through till they can sort of get those roots deep enough and keep running with it. But I don't know. I, I can't get a lot more, can't cut many more carbon miles out of my food or and I don't eat any beef anymore uh I've got three rabbits in the fridge at the moment that I've been eating so nice. I'll maybe stick to a bit of that um but yeah I it just it's it's when I do these things where I go and plant these trees I've got to make sure that we keep the water on them and that uh you know they go on to sequest carbon for the next 100 plus years you you do live a pretty green lifestyle Thomas and it's good to to know that you're personally taking on you know setting up the uh, dc fast charging network for tasmania uh, yeah, thanks. what about you lewis what are you thinking about doing well on a personal level uh our house and i think we've talked about this on other episodes is is pretty inefficient as homes go mm. it's an older home and so want to look into basically going through and, and insulating um all the walls there's some insulation in the attic but insulating all the walls ideally putting in new windows and so making it, you know, a lot cheaper to, to both heat and to cool and in turn, you know, reducing emissions there. Especially with some of the summers we have around here these days. Yeah, no kidding. Well, pivoting to uh, today's topic, uh, you know, while climate change is finally starting to get, you know, the media attention that I feel like it truly deserves, the, uh, the loss in biodiversity that has been running in parallel really just gets a fraction of the of the headlines it should. And, you know, the two crises actually have a lot more in common than you might think from kind of what's driving them on the one end to to their solutions on the other. 
And so this week, we're going to explore those linkages with an exciting guest we have from the World Wildlife Fund. But before we go there and dive into the the good stuff, uh, let's talk about uh, this week's reason for hope. Yeah. So uh, there's this really cool story about this Maryland couple. Uh, Their name's Janet and Jeff Crouch from Maryland. And they had, you know, one of these like pollinator gardens for a lawn and had, uh, you know, a bunch of native species. And their neighbor got all bent out of shape. And they happened to live in a community with a with a homeowners association, right? And so this guy ended up, you know, complaining enough that the homeowners association was like, hey, you got to take this stuff out and you got to put in good old fashioned grass. Uh, and <laughs> they were like, no, nah, we don't want to do that. And so they kind of battled back and forth to the point where they were like going to get forced to do this. And so they sued, you know, this homeowners association and got a, you know, got a lawyer finally ended up going to court on this. And one of their legislators picked this up and was like, Hey, we want to use this case and put a law in the state that says these homeowner associations can't do this to you and you can keep your, you know, keep your lawn. And so there's now a law in Maryland that, you know, basically, limits what these associations can do to tell you that you got to have grass in your lawn. Cause you know, as you know, grass is just, it's terrible. And lawns make up about one third of the U S is 135 million acres of residential landscaping. Right. And there's a lot of people that are part of these homeowner associations too, like 74 million people belong to one of these things. So, you know, hopefully if other States do this, it could be kind of a big deal and more people are, starting to uh, go to these like pollinator lawns. Uh, The National Wildlife Federation said in 2020, there was about a 50% increase of people, you know, basically creating these wildlife gardens. So that are certified by that organization. So pretty cool. And yeah, the, this article is New York Times and I I really like the title. It's uh, they fought the lawn and the lawn's done. I like that makes me think you know that song because i'm always thinking of songs anyway um, <laughs> i'm sure my neighbors are pissed man i don't live in an hoa because they had kicked me out a long time ago i was thinking like my song would be like uh this is a story about a man named todd piss his neighbors off for not keeping up his lawn you know I, that, that's me man i i but i need to get some more native plants in there because i just basically have a lawn that i don't take care of <laughs> which is a little different than like actually planting stuff you know strategically but i need to get a bunch of native plants and like take out a bunch of grass and put in more you know just landscaping rock to your point there's there's big opportunity there right i mean all those green spaces around us have the potential to be good habitat right for pollinators birds no i i mean when it comes to lawn it's just something that's in between my fruit trees like I don't yeah. know. I don't have a lot sure. of use for it. Otherwise, I'm re- really not that much into eating grass. Um, I don't know <laughs> you guys. I'd rather feed it to rabbits. He's into smoking it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, as we uh, kind of tee up today's topic, I think it might be good for those who don't necessarily have a ton of context on you know the biodiversity loss that we're experiencing, and, and we'll get into this to some degree. But I thought I would share a, a few numbers at the outset. So on average, and, and this is actually a World Wildlife Fund study, um, global populations of wildlife are documented as declining about 69%, so roughly 70% between 1970 and 2016. 
So you know, like let that sink in for a minute that basically in a 35 year period, we've lost nearly 70% of our global wildlife populations. It's crazy. It is. And, you know, another way to look at it is, is sort of the opposite side, which is that farmed animals, so things like mainly cows and pigs, now constitute 60% of the global biomass of all mammals. Humans make up 36%, which means that wild mammals makes up just 4% of the world's mammal biomass. That's nuts. So with with that, you can see how critical it is that, you know, we're paying attention to this crisis and, and actively taking steps to to stem the losses. And so to help us navigate the topic of biodiversity, because it is a complex one, um, we're lucky enough today to have Dr. Rebecca Shaw from the World Wildlife Fund on the show. Rebecca is the chief scientist at the World Wildlife Fund. She works with experts around the world to identify the emerging challenges to WWF's mission and advance scientific inquiry into the development of strategic solutions to those challenges. She leads the WWF's global science team. Uh, She has been published widely in leading peer-reviewed scientific journals, as well as a lead author on the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change's fifth assessment report. And uh, Dr. Shah holds a MA in environmental policy and a PhD in energy and resources from the University of California at Berkeley. And we're excited to, to have her here on the program today. Rebecca, welcome to Climate Optimists. Yeah, thank you. I'm so grateful to be talking to you today. Let's start you off with a question we do all our guests. When you think about uh, efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? Um, Oh, there's a lot of things that provide me with a lot of hope. One of the things I always tell people when I'm asked a question like this is, I was in a lot of despair, say 20 years ago, when the impacts of climate change weren't yet as evident but I knew what was coming because I was studying the issue. And being at that place where you know and you're trying to warn people, you're kind of like chicken little running around conference to conference telling people, you don't understand what's about to happen. (laughs) Well, now the science has gotten so much better. We know more, we're experiencing the impacts in real time and those impacts are actually scientifically attributable to the greenhouse gas emissions and the greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere, that you have many, many more people, not just me and a few colleagues focused on this in remote meetings, many, many more people in many uh, disciplines focused on this issue. And so when you go to, you can't just go to one climate meeting anymore. There are hundreds and thousands of them every single year. And with Um, the banking sector and the private sector that uh, focuses on food and focuses on energy and, and uh, governments around the world, everybody's talking about this. And I think most importantly, the youth movement is very, very active and very engaged. Um, 
I'm not alone in talking about this. I'm not chicken little anymore. I'm not, <laughs> I, I'm one of a, a million voices, which makes me very happy. I have company and there's momentum. And whenever you have that kind of social focus, big change can happen and, can, and it can happen rapidly. So that's what gives me a lot of hope and a lot of optimism for the future. I like the message. I guess before we get into our discussion about um, you know biodiversity and how it links with climate change, um, wondering if you could talk a little bit about just how, I guess, how you got into your role as chief scientist at the World Wildlife Fund and, and then give us maybe a basic kind of definition of what biodiversity is for folks who might not be familiar. Yeah, I, um, I studied uh, both climate change and biodiversity for my um, master's in policy and my science PhD. And I was really interested in the impacts of climate on biodiversity and how those down, downstream impacts on humans around the globe because of it. I started uh, in academics, but then quickly realized that the the forces that were at play that were degrading the climate and nature globally needed more than just science. It needed science uh, focus on action. And that's when I really started uh, my applied science. And then I moved from academics into the nonprofit sector to really focus on that direct link between science and application to advance solutions much more rapidly. So biodiversity is a interesting, it's an interesting concept, and it really has evolved over time. When you use the word biodiversity, it's kind of technical, it's kind of a technical term, and it's kind of wonky. Um, and often people think that it means the number of species on the planet. But it actually is a, there's a much richer definition of uh, biodiversity or biological diversity. Biodiversity has many dimensions. Uh, it encompasses the diversity of genes, different types of species, how those species come together to develop populations, different populations of the same species across space. It uh, includes habitat diversity, ecosystem diversity, and then the diversity of the flow of benefits from ecosystems to humans. So it's really, it's, it's a kind of a tiered There's different levels of biological organization that all are captured in the term biodiversity. So when we're talking about biodiversity, we're really talking about everything having to do with nature and nature's activities and the connections that create the fabric of life that support uh, life on this planet. It's a broad definition. So it's big and and expansive. Big and expansive, yeah. And and complex, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But often people measure number of species, the number of bird species you see, the number of mammal species, because that's an easy measure or an easy, easy metric to get a handle on how rich is this place, how many kinds of animals or many kinds of life forms do we find. But it really is much deeper than that. Yeah, and I, I, my knowledge of you know biology is not super deep, but I do remember in some work I've done in the past that you know, your point about populations was a new thing for me. Probably 10 years ago, we were talking about, you know, even you have a certain type of salmon, let's say, but you might have, you know, 10, 15 different populations, you know, different genetic makeups within that species. So it's not just that particular type of salmon. It's it's all of the populations, you know, beneath it. That's right. And salmon are a great, a really great example of, of all levels of diversity, because not only 
you, you might have one species of salmon across the entire west coast of the U.S., and that species will have different populations, and those populations will go up different rivers or go up different rivers at different times of the year. And so it's really interesting. And so they never really meet. These different populations or different species never really meet. But it's really interesting how this diversity plays out. Salmon's also a really great um, example because there's real obvious human benefit to those salmon runs. We harvest uh, those different salmon runs at different times of the year to put salmon in our plates to uh, give us protein. We don't often think about that as a benefit of nature, but it is a very tangible benefit of nature. We don't have to do a lot to capture that benefit. We just have to go out and fish. We don't have to put, we, we don't have to put in inputs into the production. Nature does all that for us. We put out a hook, we get a beautiful salmon on our plate and we uh, get all those amazing omega fatty acids that are so important for our nutrition. So that's a real good example of the diversity of life, but also how that diversity benefits humans directly. So let's let's talk a little bit about biodiversity loss um, to give folks some context. Kind of what you know, what sort of the rate of loss are we experiencing today, and how how is it changing with time? Yeah, the, the, there's lots of kinds of metrics that you can look at, uh, and we do look at since biodiversity as a concept and as a definition is broad. We look at a lot of different metrics. The one metric we really lean in hard to use at the World Wildlife Fund, where I where I am the chief scientist, is the Living Planet Index. And the Living Planet Index is a really important metric because it looks at populations of species across the planet and looks at their their um, relative rates of change and then in abundance. So what we've seen measuring 32,000 population of 5,000 different species across land, uh, ocean, and freshwater systems is that we've seen a 69% decline in the relative abundance of species over time from 1970 to 2018. That wow. is within our lifetimes, really significant loss of, of a measure of biodiversity population relative abundance. What that says to us is that nature is unraveling in a lot of places. Now, it doesn't mean that every species and every population is going down. It means on average across the globe, we've seen a percentage decline in populations of 69%. And, and it doesn't matter you know, what metric you're using, 69% is a huge decrease. And the reason why we worry about it is we are systematically destroying other life forces on the planet, but it's also because we're undermining the way nature works to provide us benefits. So we're undermining our own well-being which is really concerning moving into the future, particularly in the context of climate change. In other words, for those of us who are appreciate nature and the out of doors, we can look at this from sort of an altruistic perspective and say, we need to take care of other life forms, but there's also a very real connection to our ability to exist and survive on the planet. And so even if let's say we didn't have a, a vested interest in protecting um, other species, even from a selfish perspective, uh, there's a very real threat to our 
our well-being. That's right. And the reason why we look at population, we want to look at populations around the globe that has a nice distribution around the globe across different systems, is that when you begin to see declines like that, you begin to see the unraveling of the way ecosystems are functioning. And every single every single species within an ecosystem plays a function. Some are outsized functions for the kind of benefits we care about. Some don't have as as um, great a role to play in that regard. But what it says is that they're unraveling and they're not going to be able to play the functions that they had been in the past. And it's to our detriment. So I guess let's pivot from there to kind of what's driving this biodiversity loss. And I'm sure it, you know, varies by geography, but kind of what are the, the primary drivers of the losses that we're seeing today? And then I guess as an extra layer, given our focus on climate changes, where does climate change fit into that? Yeah, it's a really good question. There, there was just a, a really nice global assessment done in 2019 that looked at by the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services that looked around the globe at biodiversity loss um, and its drivers. And what we see is that for land-based systems, the biggest driver of loss is habitat destruction. And that habitat destruction largely comes from deforestation and the modification of land to grow food and food crops around the globe. Um, particularly in the tropics where you really have really high rates of biodiversity and really high rates of biodiversity loss because of the, uh, of the expansion of agricultural lands. In um, marine systems or in the oceans, the biggest driver of loss is overharvesting, so overfishing. Overharvesting is also important in land systems, but not to the extent that it is in marine system. And what we see um, is that across all these uh, systems that climate change impacts are becoming a more and more significant driver of biodiversity loss than they had been in the past. For the last um, 10 years, 20 years, or 20 years ago, climate change was really pushing uh, species and ecosystems, habitats around and really changing them. What we're seeing now, though, it, with an increase in really extreme events, droughts, fires, floods, that you can have wholesale wipeout of populations with a single climate change event. And that's where we're seeing real declines in species. And a really good example of that was the fires that happened in uh, Eastern Australia in 2019, 2020, where we lost six populations of koalas across a very vast range of forests and those populations will will take many many years to rebound if they can rebound at all. So, so generally speaking, it sounds like on land, it's really our our need, our increasing need for more and more food or certain types mm-hmm. of food mm-hmm. um, that's driving that habitat loss and in turn biodiversity loss. A similar sort of need for food when it comes to marine systems, and then climate change with these extreme events is becoming a, a threat as well, not just that maybe a certain species is moving to a different habitat because of changes in you know, moisture and temperature, et cetera, but that you can have a single event that impacts an entire population of a given species. That's right. 
that it's also, I mean, and, and, and again, can't underscore enough the increasing role the climate change is playing on undermining um, biodiversity and, and the health of nature. And again, we see these extreme events are really important. Um, the, these uh, sharp heat events or these extreme heat events are also really important in the land sector as well as in the ocean and where we're seeing uh, coral reef bleaching. And many people know that coral reefs are hotspots of biodiversity, species richness. And um, in many places around the globe, 50% of the, the corals have been bleached. So that's, that's really a major loss from extreme heat. And for those who may not be familiar with coral bleaching, bleaching in, in effect kills off that, that coral that's, um, that was living. Is that correct? That's right. You know, um, coral is just fascinating because you have, it, it's the coming together of two kind of organisms to create these, uh, these magical places where fish and other types of species live, but it's the, coming together of the coral with the um, algae that produces the food and the coral houses the food, houses that algae and that algae produces food. And that's where you get all this great production. What the bleaching does is it kills the algae that uh, resides within the coral uh, body, therefore starving the coral. So the extreme heat kills the algae and that causes uh, mass die off of the algae, which then kills the coral as well. And so extreme heat events that we're seeing in the trop in tropical waters in particular is really concerning uh, for the die off of corals. So um, not to go down a, continue to go down sort of this, this negative path, but I'm, I'm wondering, is there an anticipated sort of tipping point when it comes to biodiversity loss, like there, there is with climate change. I mean, obviously we're, we're going to, we're experiencing climate change and that's set to get worse, how worse it gets and, and how catastrophic depends on our response. And I'm wondering, is, is there something analogous when it comes to uh, biodiversity loss? Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. It goes, and it goes back to the way we measure biodiversity and the way we understand biodiversity uh, on the planet. And it's not as simple as it is climate. Climate's really, um, it, it's, we've got one metric we can measure to understand the impact of climate and that's CO2 equivalent. So that even though there's different types of greenhouse gases from a wide array of human activities that flow into the atmosphere, creating the greenhouse gas effect, it's not so easy with biodiversity because as I said before, biodiversity is defined by different levels about uh, biological organization, genes, organisms, species, habitats, ecosystem, ecosystem benefits to people. So there's no one measurable unit that helps you combine them all and then walk through the scientific process to see that outcome. What we are seeing though, uh, that I think is really important is we're seeing collapses in biodiversity um, or um, losses in biodiversity that are having significant impacts at the local scale and that those local impacts across the globe are beginning to gin up to global impacts. So lots of discrete impacts ginning up to local loss, like we're seeing with the Living Planet Index with these population losses. Since so many people around the globe depend on wild harvested animals and 
and plants for uh, for protein and for nutrition, the loss of those the loss of the those populations becomes really important for global nutrition. So again, discrete losses adding up to global losses overall. The other thing I'll say as well is that a lot of the reasons why we are seeing such severe impacts from climate change and these extreme extreme events is because ecosystems have been profoundly degraded and are not resilient anymore. And therefore you'll see um, mass flooding, whereas before the ecosystems might have been able to absorb more of those floodwaters, or you're seeing coastal flooding or storm surge that wipes out entire villages because there's no longer the mangroves and the, all the associated species that protect the coastlines like they used to. And even in places like um, Louisiana and um, in this country, we see even greater impacts of uh, greater magnitude hurricanes because the coastlines have been so severely eroded and have subsided so that when storm surge comes in, it goes in much further and damages many, many more uh, buildings and, and infrastructure than it ever has before. And this is one of the reasons. So the, the impacts we're seeing from climate change are partly because it's the degradation of nature, no longer providing those protective services, the decrease in resilience in nature, and then the increasing impacts of the climate change. So it's really a double whammy. And it's one of the reasons why we understand nature and biodiversity, biodiversity loss and climate change to be so intimately connected. Right. So if I'm understanding you correctly, it's like we've got, you know, whether we're talking about the services nature provides in helping us, you know, feed ourselves or, you know, protect ourselves from things like flooding, heat, et cetera, because nature isn't as, we'll say, healthy as it, you know, it once was, it's less able to provide those sort of protective services. That's right. And we've even seen these the impacts of climate on food systems. There are around the globe where we have had food production for uh, decades and decades, there's been a real uh, decline, a loss of soil health and a decline of, of fertility of soils to help with food protection, um, hold, retain water when there is rain during a, during a drought or when you apply water. And, and that de- degradation of the soils has uh, decreased our ability to grow food under a, a whole range of adverse conditions thus further degrading the resilience of the system. Well, and that feels like a really important point. I mean, you know, when we're talking about these linkages, obviously, you know, a lot of people I think envision our food being grown, you know, on a farm somewhere. And as the soils are being degraded, not only does that impact the productivity, our ability to, you know, produce a certain amount of food per, per acre, per hectare, but as climate change impacts are getting worse, which obviously impacts productivity, then uh, because we don't have the healthy soils, we're not able to, you know, capture that rain from a big, you know, capture that runoff rather from a big rain event or store the moisture as, you know, temperatures are getting hotter. So it's, I guess this kind of gets back to that um, negative feedback loop that you were sort of referring to. So for folks who are, who are maybe feeling, um, 
you know, pretty down as they're listening to the this uh, prognosis. Let's let's pivot to the you know the solution side. I, you know what mm-hmm. what are some of the macro level big actions we can take to help you know stem biodiversity loss. So the what we can do about it is tiered. Of course, it always is. There's what governments and businesses can do and what we can compel governments and and businesses to do to the extent that that's available to us. And there's also what we can do as individuals. Um, It's really important. Right now in Montreal, as we are talking, there is a, the nations of the world have come together to make a decision about uh, ambitious goals to protect biodiversity globally, to reverse biodiversity loss. And so governments have come together to say, let's set aside or let's conserve 30% of all water and land in collaborative ways so that we can make sure that we secure a future of nature and the future of a stable climate. But as, as individuals, we it's really our unsustainable use broadly in land to produce food, water, and energy that are really driving this change. Food production is the single most significant driver of loss of natural habitats globally. Around 30% of all the land that sustains biodiversity has been converted for food production, and agriculture is also responsible for 80% of the deforestation in the tropics where there's very, very high biodiversity, plants and animals and fungi, the whole whole lot. And agriculture also consumes 70% of the freshwater globally. So food consumption, what we consume, where it comes from, how often we eat it can have a large influence on uh, both climate change and nature loss. So when I think about what individuals can do, it's to uh, really think about how to shift to a healthier diets that are more sustainable um, to get that sort of uh, double benefit of increased nutrition and a healthy planet, healthy people. We have a WWF did this, what I think is a really nice report called planet-based diets. So not plant-based diets, but planet, P-L-A-N-E-T, planet. And it really looked at where different countries are starting from, given their culture and values, where they're eating, and the kind of changes they could make that would be more sustainable over time and more nutritional and stay within their cultural values. Super, super important because if you do something within your values and in your value system, it, you're going to be able to make changes that will last over time. The second thing is moderating consumption of those types of food that have a really outsized impact on nature and, and climate, like sugar, like red meat, like highly processed foods. Those aren't good for your health and they're not good. They're not so good for your planet. It doesn't mean doing away with them. It just means, you know, maybe instead of having a hamburger uh, three or four times a week, you do it one or two times a week. It's just, just moderating a little bit more and uh, eating more fruits and vegetables and consuming a wider variety of foods would really help take the pressure off the planet. 
The other thing, though, that that people don't think about is food waste. Uh, we uh, waste forty percent of all the food that is produced and harvested globally. Forty percent—that is massive. That means it is massive. It's so massive. So if you're wasting forty percent of everything you buy, that's forty percent more land that had to be converted. 40% more water that had to be used, 40% more species or populations of species that are likely impacted. And so just eating more efficiently, you know, go when you go to the the store, be clear about what you're going to you know, what you're buying, where it comes from, and only buy what you need and eat what you buy so that you can be smarter about your food choices on a daily basis. It would have a huge impact well, Rebecca, I appreciate you making the time to come on and talk with us about not only an important topic, but certainly a complex one. And I think doing a great job of helping us wrap our heads around what you know what the problem is, how it links to climate change, and why it's really in all our best interest to to do what we can both individually and otherwise to to help address it. Yeah, Jason, thank you so much for having me on today. And I look forward to see what your listeners are going to be doing in the future to help be part of the solution. Thanks. Thank you. So gentlemen, what did you think of the the interview? Well, I thought it was really informative. One of the things that popped out to me that I thought was kind of a clever thing, you know, we're always talking about plant-based diet, but when she was talking about planet-based diet, I thought that was really kind of clever. I went to the site and I looked up their planet-based diet and you can kind of go to that, build your own diet based on where you're from and you go in there and I selected the US. So I know earlier I was talking about, you know, trying to cut, you know, beef out more and I was looking at the flexitarian diet they had and, and if you click on it, it'll show like the US currently pumps out like 925 megatons, metric tons of CO2 equivalent. You click to flexitarian and it goes down to 447 uh, metric tons. So you can kind of see like depending on what you've wanted to pescatarian or you want to do vegetarian or vegan, it kind of like shows you, and it's not just CO2 equivalent, there's other stats there and it shows you kind of like how it will reduce all of like the land use and, and all that stuff. So it's, it's, was kind of a cool calculator. So we should, we should link that, you know, with the uh, world wildlife fund. It's, it's on their site. Anybody can go to it. It was really cool. I saw that as well. And I think we'll definitely link it because it, it provides a nice visual to your point about yeah. how just making, going from sort of where we are today, you know, whether you're in U S or, you know, Sweden or Italy or, or Australia, you can look at where kind of the baseline is and then look at, moving to those other diet types, what kind of a difference it makes to your point, not just on, on CO2, but on like land use and water and, and all those other things that affect, um, you know, biodiversity. Thomas, how about you? Any, any thoughts from your end? Oh, look, I, I think she made it abundantly clear in my mind that we, re we really need to focus on locking up um, land and stopping ex uh, agricultural expansion because ultimately this is the biggest driver of this biodiversity loss. I, I think all of it though goes back to the the root cause and that is um, global overpopulation and you know, something where I'm sure we'll do another podcast on this sometime in the future. But there were a few other things that 
potentially keep in mind. And that is that as we pivot to a zero carbon um, society, that we're careful that we don't end up wiping out more of our biodiversity through bioenergy monocultures, such as palm oil or canola oil or whatever it might be that we're growing um, to use as energy in the future. And and even when we look at um, building materials that are pivoting towards being carbon neutral or carbon negative, such as pine plantations, where and we've taken out hundreds, if not thousands of other species of animals, of plants and animals to, to replace them with with one species of tree. So I don't know. Yes, there were, there were a number of takeaways, but the most important for me was we need to stop pushing agricultural land into areas that are you know, native habitat for, for other plants and animals. I, guess, I suppose all habitats aren't created equal. You know, some of like those tropical rainforests, you know, that's all pretty high density when it comes to you know, biodiversity. And so that's, that's a big one, you know? And so when we, we, I know we hammer on beef a lot, but if you're, if you're cutting those forests down to in- increase beef production, you know, that's, that's not a good thing. And so it really does make a difference about what types of foods you're talking about as well, or what type of agriculture here in the U S you talk about monoculture. Well, a lot of our monoculture is, is really due to raising a lot of feed for, for animals that we're eating, you know, and we wouldn't have to have so much monoculture if we weren't if we weren't consuming as much meat it is really striking when you you know you look at the fact that we're talking about you know she was talking about uh the recent conference in montreal which is is now completed and i will say that the the upside the positive is that the 30 by 30 agreement that she mentions in the interview did actually make it across the finish line which is which is fantastic and you know in the case of of you know food production it becomes a a double a double whammy, right? You have deforestation that is, you know, destroying biodiversity, and at the same time, it's you know a huge contributor to to climate change. So, yeah, I think being able to figure out what those you know those natural boundaries are, like what you know what can we live within as humans, and in a way that enables nature to be sustainable, you know, kind of find its footing again. I I don't you know. I'm sure it's not an easy question to answer, but I think you're right, Thomas, that we need to figure out what is that that balance that we need to strike and and we need to live within a, a tighter footprint. And, you know, that obviously brings us back to the the amount of con- things that we consume and and the number of us that, that are here on the planet, which, you know, are are ultimately the things that uh, that are driving all of this. So yeah, so obviously critical issues that we address and but one that, you know, from a, from an optimistic side, many of the solutions are the same, right? Stopping deforestation, um, which is about reducing food waste, eating lower on the food chain, uh, putting a price on carbon. Yes, that's a great one, Thomas. Yeah, thanks. Stopping fossil fuel use, right? Because <laughs> which which starts with making fossil fuels more expensive. Yeah. Because as we, the more we can reduce global warming the less of a you know downstream impact that's going to have on on biodiversity loss um yeah and i think too that the more it'll um steer people in the in the right right direction you know i i look at this situation with all this corn and soybeans being grown to feed cattle in the in the u.s and that's all driven by the fact that fossil fuels have been so cheap that you can afford to feed light animals 
Yeah. And, you know, I guess that's, that's a good segue into sort of, you know, what can we do? And, you know, Rebecca had some great suggestions. The things that we're going to recommend uh, for folks this week are, are first, call on your representatives to end fossil fuel subsidies. It really is mind-blowing to think about the fact that we're here, you know, facing a climate crisis and a biodiversity crisis, and both of those are being, you know, pushed along by fossil fuels. So take, the, take a moment to post on social media, tag your representative, and encourage your friends uh, to do the same. You know, elected representatives actually do do a good job of tracking their social media closely, so it's a great way to get a message across quickly with, with limited effort. The uh, second option for this week, and this is in line, Todd, with your uh, your goal for yourself this year, is if you're not already eating, you know, a mostly plant based diet, set a goal for scaling back your meat consumption by switching, you know, to meat alternatives, going without. Start by estimating kind of how many days a week that you're eating meat, and then see if you can cut back by a day. And you know one of the easy ways to do this is to pick a day of the week where you you pick a number of days of the week where you're going to go meat free. That gives you a nice way to kind of keep track of things. And, you know, and the beauty is it's, it's not only a benefit to biodiversity and to climate change, but it also, you know, is, is better for your health. Well, that's a, a wrap for this week's episode. Uh, thanks as always for, for tuning in. Uh, don't forget to come back on January 17th when we'll be talking with the American Alpine Club about how nonprofits focused in the outdoor space can make a difference in fighting climate change. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimus.co. And as always, don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimus Podcast. Mm-hmm.